teaching this morning, I knew that that would mean carving out a little extra time for sermon prep this week. But what I didn't plan for was all the time that my family would spend watching, reading, discussing, and praying about what's happening on the other side of the world. But for me, I'm definitely drawn to that region. I absolutely love history from the time that I was a little girl. I've been fascinated with the history of both world wars, but also the history of the Bolshevik Revolution and the way that that altered the geopolitical landscape of Europe. I love to read the real human stories from these eras of history. I love to read anything about this time period because the stories follow a recognizable pattern. The story always opens by drawing our attention to the arrogance of man and drawing that right to the front of the narrative and then almost underneath their vile struggle for power. You get to witness the ways in which God takes the message that we as man make and then turn them into things of beauty. Some of the people that I admire most are not only forced in times like these, but it's like God polishes them so that they can shine beauty to the rest of us. I've read fairly extensively about times in history when the evils of war have been center stage and to watch as the world and its leaders careen down that same path that will inevitably cost many lives and cause harm and trauma to many more is deeply concerning to me. It breaks my heart to watch as this cycle of violence that's as old as pain and evil repeats itself again on such a large scale. Why have we still not learned? Why do we keep making the same mistakes over and over? Why is it so hard for us to remember the lessons of the past? passing on to our children. And as we dive into today's text, I hope that we can wrestle with some of those questions. We spent the last several weeks looking at the Ten Commandments from a little different perspective, and maybe coming away with a renewed sense of what God, or a renewed sense of God and His love for us. We started by looking almost curiously at just who is affected when we covet. And in that command that we get to glimpse God's heart to protect us from the poison of comparison and envy. We learned that the one who's hurt by coveting is us. We saw that God's heart is for us to combat this evil with gratitude. And then we looked at his command for us to honor our parents and others who have more experience than we do. And the fact that maybe that wasn't aimed at our children, but at all of us. That we need to find a humility that seeks out the wisdom of those who have lived and seen more than we have. In fact, we found this call to humility in many of the commandments. And then last week, we looked at the commandments upon, what, upon which almost all societies have been built. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. And we found in them that God laid the foundation for autonomy and personal freedom of choice. We saw that God was allowing each of us to recognize what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. But in that process of respecting those boundaries, we become not only free to give generously with love and with joy, but those beautiful gifts are illuminated simply because we get to choose to give rather than being compelled to do so. So, all of my favorite stories of love and bravery and sacrifice are only as beautiful as they are because of the autonomy and agency that God has always given to us and that he was simply highlighting in the Ten Commandments. This week I want to visit again this text from Exodus, and I hope today, as we always pray for our children, that we find ourselves 
in the story of God, even as we struggle this week with where we fall in the story of history. I'll be reading from Exodus 20 again if you want to follow along in your own, in your own Bible, or you can follow the words on the screen. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any gods but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That's why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother, and you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. I promise I'm going to come back to that passage, but before we settle in, I'd like to jump around just a little bit in the story of God and his people. First, I'd like for us to go back to the story of Joseph. You can find it in Genesis from chapters 37 to 50. And it's a really great story that I highly recommend reading. But this morning I'm just going to give us a cliff notes version. Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was his father's favorite. And Joseph was a dreamer. By that I don't mean that Joseph had like big ideas or big plans for his life. What I mean is Joseph had really crazy dreams while he was sleeping. Things like his family dressed as farm produce and heavenly constellations. One of my favorite parts of being a mom is hearing my kids come to me and tell me in the morning about all of their crazy dreams that they had the night before. Sometimes they'll hear one of their siblings tell about a crazy dream and then they have to tell about one of, one of theirs that was even crazier. And before long, I really start to wonder if it's dreams or just who can make up the craziest story that morning. Well, it seems that this kind of thing probably happened to Jacob's family as well, because Joseph would wake up from his dream and then tell his brothers and even his parents that according to his dreams, they would all someday bow to him. As most of you can imagine, and I can attest to this also having 12 sons, this did not go over well. In fact, this created so much jealousy in Joseph's brothers that they sell him. Joseph ends up a slave in Egypt. But if we fast forward a few years, and because he interprets a really important dream, he ends up the second most powerful man in Egypt, which basically meant that he was the second most powerful man in the known world. And even though those things seem to have worked out for Joseph, I think he was probably still pretty good. He named his sons forgetfulness, 
saying, that I might forget my father's house, and fruitfulness, saying, for God has made me fruitful in the land of, of my suffering. I don't think you name your kids those types of names if you've made peace with your past. And guess what? Joseph's family did show up, and they did end up bowing before him, just as Joseph had dreamed, allowing Joseph to tack in, I told you so, onto his bitterness. But here's the part of the story that I want us to catch this morning. After Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they bring their father into Egypt. And that creates a sort of buffer between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph loved his father, and Jacob loved all of his sons. So as long as Jacob lived, there was very little chance that Joseph, who is now plenty powerful enough to exact vengeance on his brothers, would hurt them. But then Jacob died. Immediately, Joseph's brothers become terrified that Joseph will now take his deferred revenge. In fact, they made up a crazy lie, and they told Joseph that Jacob had told all of them to pass on a message to make sure to not kill them once he was dead. The story is starting to sound more and more like how my children do business with one another. But in the face of his brother's obvious manipulation and fear, Joseph uttered these beautiful words. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. When I am the place of God, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I don't know that we always catch the significance of the change that's happened inside of Joseph. He has gone from a cocky, overprivileged teenage boy bragging to his family that he will one day rule over them all, to a bitter and angry man with real power to exact justified vengeance. And then, somehow to a humble man, giving comfort and support to those who harmed him. He's the same person, and yet he's radically different. Now let's fast forward a couple hundred years to the story of Moses, before we find him on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. You can find his story starting in Exodus chapter 2. But once again, I'm only going to hit the high point. Moses was born into the family of Joseph many years later, and now the whole family, called the Israelites, are slaves to the Egyptians. Things are not great. Because they're having so many kids, I mean, the Israelites were in real trouble. The Egyptians are actually in the process of murdering all the Israelite boys under the age of two. Moses' mom manages to hide him from the massacre, and in a miraculous turn of events, Moses ends up being raised in the very house of Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians. He grows up with the strange realization that though he has access to luxury and power, his blood is really the same as the slaves making the bread. He's forced to run away from Egypt after it goes public that a moment of anger turns to murder. He spends years in the desert creating a whole new life with his own family and a new career consisting of a bunch of sheep. And then God shows up and he asks him to go back to those people who were left behind in slavery. God asks Moses to go back to the family who had hid him and guaranteed his, Moses' survival why an entire generation of boys perished. Moses argues with God, but he's not the man. He argues over and over with God, and I love that. He argues. He actually told him no. 
He claims he can't speak, but speak well, let alone lead an entire group of people. He claims the people will never listen, and he goes on and on and on. But ultimately, he gave in, and he traveled back to Egypt. Once there, neither Pharaoh nor Moses' own people, to be honest, were excited to see him. Pharaoh obviously refuses to let the Israelites free. Not a really great start to his new job as deliverer. Most of us know the story of the ten plagues, ending with the Passover lamb and the death of the firstborn of any house that wasn't covered with its blood. Many of us have heard from childhood the miraculous way the, the Israelites walked out of Egypt, only to find themselves stuck at the Red Sea with the army of Pharaoh in hot pursuit. We know very well the story of how they walked through the sea on dry ground, and the fact that they sang and danced at the victory that God had clearly won for them. And of course, we've all heard how quickly the Israelites get upset with Moses and begin blaming him because they fear not having enough food or water. That's one of our favorite parts to talk about, I think, how quickly they turned. We've shaken our heads in judgment, wondering how they could jump so quickly from celebration and gratitude to anger, fear, and resentment. How could they forget the feel of the dry ground under their feet as they walked through the middle of the sea? How could they forget the cries of the Egyptian army as the water, water washed over them? What's happened? We get a front row seat as Moses has to go to God time after time after time, begging for wisdom for himself and forgiveness for this people. And if we look close, we see again a man changed. Just like Joseph, somewhere along the way, Moses changes. This man who stood at a strange campfire arguing with God about how unfit he was to lead becomes the epitome of leadership as he intercedes for his people. And into this story of a changed man and the birth of a nation, we find God giving this group of Ten Commandments. And this morning I want to look at one specific part of this list. I think often makes us really uncomfortable. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. As I read those words, I find myself struggling to articulate all the things that fly through my head. Obviously, on first read, it kind of just sounds like a pretty awful threat. But as I spent time with it, I started to hear something else. Chris mentioned last week that after his first sermon in this series, just three short weeks ago, I had some thoughts I foolishly shared with him. And he told me I should shape those thoughts into this sermon. I believe that he even told you that I had things I wanted to share with you. And I'm here to tell you that he stretched the truth. I'm not a big fan of public speaking, but for some reason I agreed. And since then I've struggled and wrestled with these words because I think I'm living them. And when I'm in the middle of living something, the last thing that I really want to do is try and talk about it. At 48 years old, I'm becoming keenly aware that I'm living in the stories and the sins of my own. I'm learning and examining my life with fresh eyes and attempting to honestly look at who I am. I'm learning to look at my past and how it affects my, my present in the hope that I can imagine 
a better and more healthy future for myself and my family. We all love a good story. In fact, whenever Chris preaches a sermon that's too dry, with too much nerd work in it, when I read it, I usually tell him, you need more stories. Science even tells us that stories are the very bedrock of our society. We need them. They bring order to our chaos, and they allow us to organize the past, make sense of the present, and help us to imagine a future. Stories are really important. Chris talks often about the fact that the majority of the Bible is written in narrative form, and the Ten Commandments are part of that narrative. They're part of the story. They're part of the story of God and His people. We've spent several weeks now finding inside the Ten Commandments the love and heart of a father who really only wanted the best for his children. Which makes me wonder, why did God throw this in? I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Other than the obvious explanation that fathers are masters of loving us while also sounding threatening, I'd like to look just a little deeper. What if Chris is right, and underneath all of these commands is a God who's looking out for the well-being of his children? And what if God knew that life is busy and crazy and complicated, and it could be really easy to get so caught up in that, that just getting through the day and then we forget how much of an impact we actually have on the future, especially if we have kids? What if God knew we needed to be reminded that when we create idols, our kids, who learn by our or who learn by our example, will see us worship those idols, and then we'll likely do the same as well. But we're all good Christians who would never make idols out of wood or gold. You'd never bow down and worship them, right? But what if we think that the same principle applies to the things we allow to drive our lives? What if He was also warning us not to become consumed with money, or power, or greed? Because that would likely mean that our kids would also serve those jobs. What if our whole world revolves around food, or security, or success? How likely is it that our kids will imitate that? What if we forget that he's the God who rescued us? Or worse yet, we spend our lives trying to convince ourselves that he's not even there. Can those become idols? And this is a truly terrifying question to me. Is it possible to take a list like these Ten Commandments, and strip them of all the love and care and grace and simply obey them like a checklist and make them into an idol. And if we do that, then what gets passed on to the third and fourth generation? I don't know if you remember the story that Chris told last week about running into Quick Trip trip to get a cup of coffee and leaving our oldest son in charge. Or the fact that Chris's one admonishment designed to keep our children safe while he was out of the car, so quickly became an entire behavioral code. What if we have done the same thing with God's love? And if that's possible, what would that do to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and so on? Could it be possible for a loving relationship with a God of grace to become a religion that, though good for us, might only become a behavioral code? rather than a relationship full of love with the God of the universe. Earlier we ran through the high points of the stories of Joseph and Moses, and I spoke of the change that we see in both of them, if we simply look for it. But honestly, this happens all through the Bible. 
Noah, Job, Abraham, Joshua, David, Peter, Paul. There's also the stories of Ishmael, Tamar, Samson, Jonah, Jabez. Each one of those stories told an entire lifetime of days and choices. Decisions that affected not only them, but their descendants. Every single one of them left a mark. How often do we tell their stories without thinking of what it was to actually live their lives? Do we think of the confusion and anger that Joseph must have felt as he was a prisoner? Not to mention the loneliness. Do you think Joseph prayed while he was in prison? If so, what do you think those prayers were like? And even more important, how do you think that it impacted his son to be his son to be named forgetfulness? But the story that came attached to the name about how your dad or how your dad did time because of his dirt brothers. Do we wonder about the internal struggle Moses might have had at realizing that his parents, his sister and brother, were still living in such place while he spent his days in luxury, learning to read and write? Did he live in constant conflict? Could childhood guilt have driven Moses' reluctance to join God's rescue plan? Did survivor's guilt over being the only boy in his generation to survive affect the way Moses lived his life? Did his kids know these stories? How often do we miss the whole picture? The Ten Commandments were born out of real stories, of real people, and they received them as a word from God into their story. How excited might Moses have been to start a society where a generation of two-year-old boys could never be sacrificed at the whim of a maniacal king? What if when we get lost in a behavior code, and we forget that we have a lit God who desperately wants to have a relationship with us that we can pass on seamlessly to future generations. How do we pass on a relationship? We can't make someone choose to have a relationship. We most certainly can make them follow a behavioral code, though. Is that really a relationship? I honestly think the answer is the very book that we talk about every single week. God's Word never extracted the code out of the story. We tend to do that, but God didn't do that. In the Bible, the code is woven into the story, into the relationship. So the only way to get behavioral code is to walk with Joseph through his changes and his relationship with God, or to walk with Moses through his struggles and his relationship with God. The code is actually part of the relationship. A couple weeks ago, I finished the autobiography of one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey. Philip has written some truly powerful work in his nearly 50-year career as a writer and journalist. In his truly masterful way, Philip tells the story of his life as he looks at some of the things that have shaped him to be the man that he is. He tells of his struggles to find God for himself. He tells of secrets and a search for the truth of who he is. And as I listened, I found myself asking one question over and over. How in the world did he get his family to tell these stories? How did he convince his uncles to speak of the dark secrets of mental illness and wartime PTSD? How did he piece together the fragments of the harsh environment that his mother was raised in? How could he speak so honestly and openly about his childhood without fear of hurting his mother and his brother? Many... Maybe even most of his stories were hard and ugly. 
They weren't pretty in and of themselves, but they were part of the fabric that wove together to create this man who speaks so beautifully of the love and grace of God. In fact, every time I read something that Nancy's written, I walk away with an intense, burning desire to show my child or my children the God that Philip speaks about so beautifully. Because that's my God, and yet I fail so badly trying to find the words to convey him to my children. I've said it before, but I truly don't remember a day when I didn't know and love Jesus. From some of my earliest memories, I've always known that God loved me. I've told my children of how he miraculously healed me of asthma when I was 18 years old. I've told the story only partially joking about how I made a deal that I would marry the man who was stupid enough to kiss me on the first date. <laughs> I've told my children how much I appreciate the fact that we didn't have a TV in our house until I was a teenager. And how I'm actually glad that I don't know many of the shows, movies, music of the 80s. Chris often jokes about just how sheltered my childhood was. But the truth is, there was a lot of me there. But what I find it hard to share with my children is the stuff that wasn't so beautiful. It's really hard for me to talk about or even look at hard things. I learned early on that emotions were not to be trusted. They should always be ignored in favor of reciting a Bible verse or a Christian cliché. I know well the scars that form when a father's secret sexual addiction makes it impossible for him to connect with you, to love you in the way that every little girl hopes for. I know the shame and guilt of being continually sick and spending countless hours asking God to heal me, not because I felt worthy of being healed, but because I just didn't want to take any more medication that made me feel any worse. I still remember the fear of talking. I somehow knew I wasn't really supposed to take that space. My only purpose was to make my parents and others loathe lighter. I know what it is to wake at night and hear my parents whispering about my dad's attempted suicide. And I know about the utter exhaustion that my mom was living through trying to help my dad fight a battle that she didn't understand. Mostly, though, I know what it is to never speak of these things. To listen as other people speak so highly of my parents and to feel as though those people are complete strangers to me. But above all, I know to never mention any of those things. You see, I know what it is to carry the sins of my parents, and probably their parents, and parents before them. I've pieced together because my family really doesn't talk. Enough of my family story to know that many of the burdens that I carry were handed down to me because that's what families do. I know what it is to carry these things into my marriage and my family and then to hand them off to another generation. I've grown far more capable in the past several years of speaking of these things. But as I read Yancey's book and as I looked again at this list of ten protections that God has laid out for us so very long ago, I thought about this odd warning that sounds so much like a threat. God, am I handing my kids? Am I handing them stories of a God who loves and wants what's best for them? Well, I'm not talking about how God is showing up in my hard places, simply because I don't want to talk about the hard places. And if I only show them half of the God I actually serve, am I handing them an idol? We love to talk about how my great-great-grandma prayed that God would heal her son's backward feet. 
actually watched as her feet turned around. It's a family story that everyone loves to tell. But we usually leave out how hard it must have been for her to watch the destruction that was caused by my great-grandfather's alcoholism. God was there for both of them. By only telling half the story, not passing on an idol, if I don't tell my kids about the dark parts of their grandparents' story, aren't I forced to leave out how with God's help, their grandparents have defied the odds and built a loving, strong relationship, despite infidelity and addiction. And if I don't tell those stories, can they know that God has used them to shape who I am and the struggles that I face? And if they don't know that, can they really understand that each the life that each of them are living? Am I really handing my children a real God, the God that I know who has shown up in my darkest moments? If I don't include all the stories, if I'm unwilling to include the sin and the brokenness both of my past, but also of my present, am I passing to the third and fourth generation a true God or simply an idol? In all the greatest stories from Adam and Eve to Noah, Abraham, David, Paul, Jesus, really every war and struggle, whether big or small, throughout all of history. We find the God who shows up, the God who sees us, not only in the moments of greatest triumph, but in the moments of weakness, the moments of pain, the moments where it seems that all is lost. God saw to it that we heard the stories that weren't pretty. He included them in his Bible, and he commanded his people to tell these stories to their children. All of them. Not just the happily ever after moment. He included the bad and the ugly, the lies and deceit, the rapes, the massacres, the murders, the suicides, the judgments. And then he told us to talk about all of them. Listen, O Israel, the Lord, is, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Somehow, even in this list of commandments that God gave to his people, if we simply choose to look, we can find a God seeking to show us love and protection. The desire for us to find ways to live in relationship with Him in all of our stories. And then to pass those commandments, those stories, those relationships that go with them to the future. I want to visit one more story this morning. And this story is found in Genesis 25 to 49. And it's the story of Joseph's father, Jacob. And once again, I'm only going to hit the high point. Jacob is born to Isaac, Abraham's son. He's the younger of a set of twins, and he spends the majority of his life conniving and jockeying for a better position. He steals his older brother's blessing and inheritance and ends up having to run for his life. He spends years in another land building his own family, of which Joseph becomes one of his sons. When he returns to his homeland, he's still living with the guilt of the stolen blessings and the fear of his brother's anger. On his way home, he's told by the servants, by his servants that his brother Esau is coming to meet him. Jacob springs into action and separates his massive holdings and his family into groups so that if his brother attacks one group, he and the other groups might get away. Yep, he was that kind of guy. In 
And on that fateful night before he met his brother, Jacob sends his wife and children to a place across the brook where he hopes they will find safety from his brother. Genesis 32 records the next part of the story this way. But Jacob stayed behind by himself, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't get the best of Jacob as they wrestled, he deliberately threw Jacob's hip out of joint. The man said, Let me go, it's daybreak. Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man said, What's your name? He answered, Jacob. The man said, But no longer. Your name is no longer Jacob. From now on, it's Israel. God wrestler. You've wrestled with God. And you've come through. In this story, we see another man change. The change happens in the breaking of a hip, and it's so deep that it facilitates the changing of a name. That's what I want us to all notice this morning the name. The name Jacob means deceitful, sneaky, cheater. And up to this point, that had pretty much summed up Jacob's life. And yet, in one small paragraph, his name was changed to Israel, God wrestler. The angel, the angel even told him, you will be called Israel because you wrestled with God. Jacob wrestled with God, and a nation was born. Israel. That nation still exists today, and it's a nation still defined by wrestling. God purposely named his people, a people who wrestled with me. I don't know if you remember, but earlier I mentioned that Chris convinced me that this message was best for my lips. And I think this name is why. Because you see, I stand here today in a long lineage of people, of history going back all the way to Jacob, and even before, of the people who wrestle with God. We are the people who fight through to find the God who sees us. I titled this message, Why Is This So Hard? Because as Chris was pointing out, the love underneath the Ten Commandments, I was struck by how difficult we make everything. Jesus said it's as simple as love God and love people. Moses said, do these ten things because they're really good for you, and you'll do well if you do. Yet we've made it so hard. I think the answer is maybe because we're God wrestlers, for those who wrestle with God. Wrestling is a privilege. We wrestle because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God sent Jesus. And because he came, each of us can stand here today and we can each wrestle with God. We can ask the hard questions, we can look at the ugly parts of our story, and we can wrestle to find God in each and every one of them. So how do we respond to this? I know we've gone on quite a long and convoluted journey this morning, and you might be feeling just a bit uncomfortable. How exactly do we respond to this? How do we begin to find the idols in our story, those things that we often hold because they were handed to us by our parents? How do we wrestle with them so that we can find ourselves in the second part of Exodus 26? But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. How do we pass on to future generations the lavish, the unfailing love of God and I think the short answer is we wrestle. We do the hard work and we refuse to hand down a cliché God of all sunshine and rainbows. And we face the valley, knowing that God is there too. This Wednesday begins the season of Lent, and we mark this occasion 
here with our actual day service. And I'm going to ask that each of you join on this journey, taking some time either here at the church or at home, wherever you are, to begin to wrestle with your own God story. And as we journey through Lent and you practice your own facts, lean into God. Ask Him to show up in your story. Parts of your story are hard. Where is it hard for you to find His hand? Where does anger, hurt, and tears blur out His love for you? What parts of your story do you need to grieve and feel so that you can find His goodness? I can promise each of you, even as I declare to myself, that like Jacob, after our own wrestling match, we will be able to declare, Jacob made the place penal, God's face, because he said, I saw God face to face and lived to tell the story. I believe that as we learn to wrestle with God, as we bring our children along on that journey by telling our stories in ways that show them the ways that we've seen God, we'll be handing our children a more real and honest look at the living story of God, the story that we find in the pages of the Bible, but also the part of the story that we're all a part of right now, the part that we've lived and are continuing to live every single day. And what if, in doing that, we can help our children to find themselves in this very same story that God's writing. And what if in that, they can also see that the God of Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, and you, is also there.